0: Hey, this is Kay Flay, and you are listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell. Some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. And I'm starting to show
1: the pictures from Twickenham. And while I'm doing that, in the room walks Paul McCartney, George Harrison, John and Yoko. Somebody said, those are great, we should do a book. And then I get hired for the balance of the filming of Let It Be. And the whole time I'm there, which is probably the balance of that month till the rooftop shoot, I never see all four of them in the same room ever again.
0: Today's guest is Ethan Russell, one of the most influential photographers in Rock's storied history. He holds the distinction of being the only photographer to shoot album covers for The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, and The Who. As the great-grandson of suffragist Florence Joffrey Harriman and the godson of Cole Porter, Russell seemed destined for greatness. After studying English and art at the University of California, Davis, he traveled to England in 1968, where he planned to pursue a career as a writer. But after a chance introduction to Mick Jagger, he became the Stones' primary photographer from 1968 to 1972. His work for the band included his fateful early photographs of troubled guitarist Brian Jones, who had perished just six months later, and the Stones' 1969 tour, including their performance at Altamont Speedway, which ended in violence and tragedy. After meeting John Lennon and Beatles' assistant Neil Aspinall during the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus production, Russell was invited to photograph the Fab Four at Twickenham Studios in January 1969, where the band was working in the early stages of their Let It Be project. His photos adorned the cover and gatefold of the eventual LP. That August, Russell participated in the Beatles' final formal photo session at Tittenhurst Park. As for the Who, Russell's photographs were featured on the cover of Who's Next and the book accompanying their Quadrophenia album. The band's lead guitarist Pete Townsend once quipped that Russell's photos look ready to put up in the National Gallery. Ethan is the civilized eye of an uncivilized art form, rock and roll. Russell received a Grammy nomination for his work on Quadrophenia. Over the years, his subjects have also included Jerry Lee Lewis, Phil Everly, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, the Moody Blues Cream, Traffic, Eric Clapton, and a host of others. His latest book, Ethan Russell Photographs, offers a powerful retrospective of a bravura career in rock and roll photography. Welcome, Ethan Russell. Let's get down to brass tacks. So, Ethan... I know that, like me, you are an English major.
1: Was would be the, actually be the accurate thing. Uh, I mean, that was what interested me. Photography wasn't on my radar at all. And then because my experience with studying English literature in university uh, was that I, I got this kind of schizophrenic response, which is I got so analytical about writing that I couldn't write anymore. Right? And... And it just froze me right up. And so I switched to the art department uh, and kind of went through that sort of process, which is, you know, different. Uh, I'm very much about history these days, interestingly, which I know is also you. Uh,
0: and so we share some stuff. Right? And those English and art major days then took place back when you were at UC Davis, correct? It
1: was. And it was... So (laughs) these are things I tell my son, but, but I was, my father and his father started the oldest operating thoroughbred ranch in California. Right. And I spent time there when I was a kid because it was really my grandmother's at that point. And I knew so little about who I was as a human at the age of 16 or 17 that I, the best I could think of is that I'd be a vet. (laughs) That's how I ended up. At Davis, right, Uh, because it was the veterinary medicine school, right? By the time I got there, I had just enough self-knowledge to to know that I um, hated science (laughs) and wasn't overly fond of animals. And so, therefore, that wasn't really probably my major. And then I enrolled in English as my major at that point because I knew I liked literature and writing. Uh, and and then that kind of got sort of the bubble burst because of what I just told you, that it became too cerebral for me. And I went into the art department. And Davis at the time had a fabulous art department. Wayne Tibo was there and uh, William Wiley was there and Bruce Thaumann was a stu- graduate student. It was really this great little group of people, you know, artists in a cow town. So it was, it was an, you know, I, I have some nostalgia about it, and I have to remind myself, I tried to drop out every single semester I was there. <laughs> but, you know, and I made it to my junior,
0: second part of my junior year, and then I,
1: then I skipped town.
0: So how then <laughs> does all of this come together uh, in, at a certain point, at a very young point in your life, um and you just said you were you were thinking of dropping out every semester how does this get you to england
1: you know there're two sort of sort of pivot points with that question one is the one that i like which is john lennon's line about life is what happens while you're making other plans really you know uh and i and i there's and, and what the daily beast at one point wrote about me which is that ethan russell took something like Ethan Russell has more luck than any human being should be allowed to have, which is, which is that line I also like. So it's completely and entirely serendipitous, which is to say I was sort of at loose ends having dropped out. And I think I tried to borrow some money from my dad so I could get a movie camera. Cause I I'd, I'd seen blow up was the big thing that made me think photography might be interesting. Right. So because I was an art student and then photography was just another creative thing I could maybe do. So I bought a camera, blah, 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 and wandered around Golden Gate Park pretending to be David Hemmings. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so that's kind of what was going on. And then I thought, well, that's sort of fun. And, and so I wasn't attached to being a still photographer. I wasn't attached to any of it. And I, I, and I thought, well, maybe doing film would be even more interesting. So I went to borrow, borrow some money from my dad so I could buy a little film camera. And he said to me, um, well, son, do you think you're using your time as well as you might? And I said, well, you know, sort of going around the world. And he said, why don't you do that? Seriously. And so that's kind of what got the travel started. So that was also would have been 64. No, later. That would have been 67 or early 68. And, and, you know, this is now we're in the heart of the British invasion, right? So even though I'm in San Francisco, which is where I lived at that point, where I grew up, um, Britain, London seemed like the Mecca for obvious reasons, right? So uh, I got on a plane. I just went to England.
0: <laughs> That's wonderful.
1: You know, and my experience was really, I mean, you know, now I'm old now. I got lots of perspective and I've written several books so I can sort of narrate the story. But at the time, it was all life is what happens while you're making other plans. So I went to England thinking that I was going to emerge into sort of like the Hate ashbury only, you know, on steroids. And of course, to me now, it seems all self-evident, but at the time I knew nothing. That's what I thought was going to happen. And of course I emerged into post-war England, right? Uh, and none of this stuff, even though there was a British invasion and there was all this music going on, you couldn't feel it when you were in it. Was like there was no radio to speak of. I missed the uh, pirate radio, right? By the time I got there, pirate radio was kind of – well, just wasn't there. So there was the BBC, which had no rock and roll on it, you know, one show, which was marginal, and it went on television – just didn't see it. This thing that was the most important thing to me was just invisible, right? Or inaudible might be a better word. And, and, but I loved England. I just had this immediate sort of like I'd been born there. I just loved it. So I didn't mind that it didn't have rock and roll. And from my point of view, it didn't. And I just decided to stay. I had no reason to go home. It was the war. So the war, I didn't go to get out of the war, but the war was, you know, very present and very horrible. and, and so I was just staying there. I went to work for a autistic uh, for a hospital that looked after autistic children. Didn't work. It was a volunteer job, and that's what I was doing. And that truly was it. I lived in a one room bed set, and um, uh, in Kensington. So I managed to live in pretty decent neck of the woods because that's what I was used to. And besides which, you could get an apartment for like you know nine quid a week, you know. Uh, and, and anyway, so I was there and a friend from college came to stay with me. One of the, you know, exiles from the United States. And then a friend of his, and he invited a friend of his by to meet me. And it turned out to be a guy called Jonathan Cott. Do you know who Jonathan is? From Rolling Stone. Okay. So Jonathan, Jonathan, I love Jonathan. Right. So Jonathan shows up and. And I'm trying to be a writer. I'm sitting there trying, really, trying to write really, really, really bad poetry. Uh, and, but that's what I was trying to do. But I had a couple of pictures from when I had bought this camera in San Francisco. Uh, and they were mostly of children. right? But my brother m- managed, in quotes, a, an American group called Blue Cheer. right? So I had some pictures of them. And Jonathan saw them and said, and then asked me to shoot his next interview. I had no idea who it would be, and it turned out to be Mick Jagger.
0: So you're with Jonathan Cott, and now you're photographing his interview with uh, with Mick Jagger.
1: Basically, I think about a month and a half later, he called me up again and asked me to shoot his next interview, and his next interview was with John Leonard. And so... My first two sessions, basically, were Mick Jagger and John Lennon. And then I went, oh, well, wait a minute. Remember that blow-up dream? That looks, that's kind Oh, of cool. Maybe I can do that. And then I started to sort of try and sell myself a little bit. And, of course, I had these two guys. And the other piece, which you'll appreciate, I had no idea, was I was an American. And today I'm convinced the fact that I was American helped me incredibly. Never would have occurred to me. But what you, of course, learned, and I'm again, I'm sure you know all this. Uh, for all of those guys, 1950 American rock and roll was was the uh, was the was the North Star, right? So here was this American, and they were all because you know this is a this is a great George uh, Harrison quote. I don't know where I read it. And, and he was asked by some American, no doubt, whether or not he had a phonograph when he was a kid.
0: And his response was, no, we didn't have sugar. <laughs> right. Well, they had, you know, they had rationing until 1953.
1: That's right. I'm glad. It's uh, nice to talk to somebody who knows this stuff. Uh, yes, that's exactly correct. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like and so they look at me and they thought I was glamorous. Who would have ever thought? I mean, I don't know that that's what they thought. Right. And Lennon, as you'll know was such an extraordinary sort of egalitarian fellow when he was being egalitarian. Um, he was delightful. I mean, he, he couldn't have been nicer. But the idea that these people would think I was interesting, uh, how
0: could that be true? You know, that's just impossible. Right, because you probably at that age were not very interested in you at all. Oh, no, I was a
1: mess, you know, in a a lot of different ways. Uh, But I was, I was being very judgmental about uh, sort of Madonna clones, you know, when Madonna showed up and then all of a sudden there was all these little Madonna types roaming around and I was sitting there being incredibly judgmental about it and I realized I was a complete John Lennon clone. (laughs) You know, I had the same glasses, the same haircut, you know, it it was silly, you know, but... But, you know, because, because who?
0: why wouldn't you almost, you know? Absolutely. So going back a bit, what is your first memory of the Beatles then? Well,
1: I worked with John, I worked with John and I've got some really, I don't know if you've seen my book. Have you seen my book?
0: book? Uh, But I I mean like back in the States, do you? Oh, uh, Oh, you know, okay. Well done. Um, so I
1: was I was aware of them. So my first memory of them was walking across the quad in in uh University of California, Davis, and hearing I Wanna Hold Your Hand. Oh, like coming over the air air, literally, uh, and thinking that's pretty cool. But They come in because I'm an American. Because I find the story for Americans and English are quite different, principally because of folk music and John Lennon. So for me, it went from Elvis, and then when Elvis went into the army, it went into Fabian and and everybody stopping interested, right? Uh, And then music kicked up again when Bias showed up, right? And then Bias led us to Dylan, and of course Dylan. That's, that's what I find is one of the fundamental differences is, is while some of the Brits had Dylan, most of them did, right He was too American. And, and then Dylan and bias and that and him turning electric was a really big part that coincided with the Beatles and the Stones coming over, kind of thing. But if anything, I was more attached to Dylan at that point. Um, anyway, so the Beatles I heard him like that, and then. I was aware that they were going to be on Ed Sullivan and I was driving in my MGA roadster in the snow around Tahoe. I remember it all really well. Um, freezing MGA's MG, MGs are British cars are really not much. And, uh, and, uh, and not a good car to be in the snow with, but I pulled into a little diner cause I knew the Beatles were going to be on television and I, I walked into this old diner and up in a corner was a little black and white TV and I watched The Beatles on Ed Sullivan and remember Ringo shaking his head principally uh, and just remember being excited, right? I mean, it was exciting. So, but the experience then for me, because it's broader than just The Beatles was, and I talk about this, so try and explain to people like your students, you know, it's not just... So I identified the biggest change for my generation, for me certainly, in music was when the singer-songwriter became the performer. Because in American music, that basically was not true except for either country or blues, but certainly not for popular music. You know, somebody else wrote the songs, right? So all of a sudden, these guys are not only performing, but, but... but not only writing but performing so the so the feeling of being like sitting right next to them and that they're talking right directly to you was so powerful right and and that's kind of what i went and then the other thing is that every i think this is what it felt like pretty much every you know six weeks eight weeks it would be a new album from somebody you know it would be the Beatles, like, you know, they, how many records did they release in America in two years? It was incredible because they were doing all those
0: reissues.
1: Yeah, exactly right. So it was like the this flood of music never stopped from then until you know 1975, basically. Uh, and and so I was just immersed in it. Uh, that's what that was like. So it was the Beatles who, you know, because they're popular and because they have harmonies. That's how I attribute having harmonies to being one of the <laughs> harmony and melody that's all you need right and uh, and so they were so you know and then Revolver of course right so Revolver turns it into being a little bit psychedelic and much smarter right but it's still harmonies and it's still them so that's the first time I saw them and that's when I saw them on Ed Sullivan and then it was then, then I heard the Stones after them and I, and and with the Stones it was almost more how they looked interestingly enough, you know, because the look for the stones was so important. It was so revolutionary. Right. (laughs) The Beatles was, that was fine. But you know, I had my, my, my... when my son was how old, Um, I'm going to say he was maybe six or seven. And I was, and I showed him a picture of the Beatles from meet the Beatles. And it, and he asked me, are they all the same person?
0: <laughs> I've always been uh, like you. I, I, uh, I'm i mixing up my thoughts. The, the one thing that you just said that really struck a chord with me was the, the notion of being with uh, a songwriter, singer songwriter, who's also a performer. It was and, and of course, the Beatles have a big role in this, but certainly Baez and Dylan predate them. And that is the idea. And again, we're English majors here. Of authorship. You know, in a way, what the Beatles did on a mass scale was champion the idea that you too can be an author, if you think about it.
1: Maybe you're a rich man. You can be anything, right? Uh, was really part of their charm, right? Uh, but yes, you can be an author. I think that's, I mean, Baez didn't write her own material, so that sort of rules her out. Did but he was in, but he was in the tradition of Woody Guthrie, right? So the songwriter performer in that context was not as novel as it was in popular music. That's the that's the big change for popular music. And now everybody, you know, now you, you still got four and four bands, right? You know, bass, drums, guitar, and and it's a songwriter, and they they completely that was unheard of. In fact, when I got to England. Really, there weren't any. You didn't hear the Rolling Stones on the radio. You didn't hear the Beatles on the radio. You heard Cliff Richard. You, ha- you know, they were still trying to get their performers to look like Elvis Presley, which is what Cliff Richards did, right? So, you know, it was it was unbelievable. You know, marching back in time uh, in terms of what broad British culture was doing, and then. It took me years to understand, you know, the these really massive differences between the two cultures because Americans are so ignorant, they don't know anything. And um, and I just assumed that they kind of saw the world as I did. It took me a long time to realize that was not the case, right?
0: Absolutely. And there still is a reverence today among um, certainly Middle class Britons uh, and 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 the upper class for the intellect, Uh, and it often strikes us uh, in in terms of how different that is from our experience here in the United States. Right.
1: I went to Cambridge before I ever settled in London. Before I was living in my bed set when I was still traveling around, and I looked at Cambridge and thought, I want to go there. You know, sounds like Tina Fey.
0: I want to go there. Right. That's right. I want to go to there.
1: Want to go through there because it was it was like so idyllic right and so I walked in and talked to a couple people who looked at me like I was an alligator you know uh and you know, and I sent off of my transcripts well needless to say, they ignored me. I had no idea the the level of what you do know obviously because you're going there uh is the level of academic achievement because it was such a small percentage of the population right so Anyway, if if Cambridge accepted me, I would never have done the cover for Let It Be.
0: (laughs) We'll be back with more from Ethan Russell after these messages.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message
0: and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're back with Ethan Russell. Another thing um, when I think of you, and I'm glad you mentioned Jonathan Cott, in a way you guys invented your jobs, didn't you? Well, Jonathan was, you know, Rolling
1: Stone was really early. So Jonathan was a stringer, unquote, for Rolling Stone. But yeah, I mean, I I take uh, you know the, you can squabble about this uh, a little bit, but I I'm you know if I'm not the first music photographer, it's not I'm not the first person, to obviously, to take pictures of musicians, you know, um, and i suppose one could even say well i'm gonna forget his name now uh jazz photographer herman leonard right was a you know music photographer but in the context of rock and roll music i can certainly lay claim to it both because when i first took pictures they were of my brother's band that was 67 right but you know i never really did anything else other photographers who were quite successful uh and did like um uh, Garrett Mankiewicz who did the early stone stuff, which was so phenomenal. Right. Uh, but Garrett was, was more sort of traditionally a photographer. So while he did that as he, you know, he'd get jobs and take pictures or whatever people would pay him to take pictures. All I ever did was, was music. So in the sense of, of if that's the, if that's the definition, I'm, I'm, if I'm not the, the first, I'm awfully close, you know? Um, But there just wasn't. And it's there wasn't any such thing as music photography, unquote.
0: Right. And these weren't vocations people thought of, of being a rock journalist or a rock photojournalist. And, you know, you mentioned serendipity earlier. You also had deep serendipitousness ouch, in uh, in in showing up when you did. Right. To be there at the moment when obviously the Rolling Stones are in a major and difficult period of transition with Brian Jones. Um, and they're about to go to places uh, they probably couldn't have imagined at that point with their next several records. You know, they were about to enter their own heyday.
1: Certainly Brian's incapacity. I, I hardly knew him. And, you know, and he was, as everybody said, oh, well, I have a picture of Brian that I took at cochford Farm. It's not in my book because I decided not to be mean. Um, where he is a close up. And he looks every day at 46 years old, right? Or older. And he was 26. And, uh, you know, when Brian died, it it was before we had the expectation that if you're a rock and roll singer, you're going to (laughs) die. You know, that You know that became kind of the expectation in the early seventies, right? But he was the first, and he and that took everybody out, right? You know, uh, I didn't, it, you know, I didn't know him that well, but it was shocking, right? Um, so, yeah, and and again, I think my Americanness helped me because, but you know, the Rolling Stones had real that, but in that time, in particular, the Rolling Stones really didn't have any clear path to remaining successful. It just wasn't clear. Right. Um, And I have a little sort of observation, which you may or may not like as a historian, you know, when you're dealing with people that are dealing with history, you know, when they invaded Normandy, they did not know they were going to be successful. Right. You know, the something passes and you have the, and you know, the ending, there's an almost unconscious tendency to think you, you knew it from the beginning. Right. But no. Right. So the, I didn't know this stuff. I mean, a lot of this I found out after the fact, but you know, the Rolling Stones didn't have any money because of Alan Klein. Right. They couldn't get any money. Uh, They were basically broke and they couldn't travel because Brian had been busted twice. They got off the first one, but the second one that you're not getting on, you're not getting the visa to go to America. Forget it. Right. And I, and I had taken pictures of him, you know, holding a gun and wearing an American flag, just like any, you know, little hippy dippy guy would do. Cause I thought it was far out and, you know, and those would never saw the light of day for the longest time, because you can't do that and get an American visa. So, they needed to be able to travel and work, and it wasn't clear that they were going to be able to. So, you know, it was a very precarious time. And that's why the rock and roll circus
0: was done. Rock and roll circus was done because they couldn't leave town. Huh. So it was, and I, uh, that would, I, I had never thought about it that way. That makes all the sense in the world. And, of course, they just come off this moment where they were seen as being derivative after their satanic majesty's request. Yeah, that was not a hard point. No. Uh, so, you know, John Lennon's point
1: about, you know, when he was being bitchy with Jan Wenner about, you know, I'd like to, you know, everybody, to, I mean, I don't blame him. I'm with him. Uh, everybody talks about how the Stones are revolutionary and the, and, and the Beatles are not. That's a load of shit. I'd like to, I mean, I think this is close to a quote. I'd like to show you every album that we ever did and then show you what the Rolling Stones did six months later, i.e. let it bleed, let it be, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And that's true. I want to be your man. I want to hold your hand. You know, it's, it's, although that was a Lennon McCartney song, but the, but uh, that's, I think that's right. I think, I think the Beatles were more revolutionaries in, in most every way.
0: Not to take anything away from the Stones, but. No, but then the Stones do, I guess, you know, with the sad but reality of the loss of Brian, it kind of opens the door for them to then make this spate of amazing records that they weren't making before.
1: Well, I think if you go, I mean, for me, I mean, the early stuff with Brian before it becomes useless.
0: Oh, no, fabulous, absolutely. Right? I just meant in terms of album rock, you know, that those records, Sticky Fingers, is elevated.
1: Well, and Let It Bleed is still, in many ways, my favorite of their records. Let, and uh, Exile of Main Street, right? Uh, yeah, Jimmy Miller and Glenn Johns, right? And. And they and I guess the,
0: the truth is they just got better. But Glenn and Jimmy Miller, I think, were part of that. Oh, thing. for sure, that was their George Martin there for a minute, or, right. or years where there a minute. So did working on the Rock and Roll Circus? Did that was that related then to you turning around and doing uh, Twickenham and the Beatles with Let It Be?
1: So saw another. You know, life is what happens while you're making other plans, right? Um, so I do that work because by that point. I've done a couple of sessions with Mick Jagger uh, and other stuff with the Stones. So when the circus rolled around, I was just kind of the go-to guy, right? So I was shooting that, and Lennon was there, of course, and they knew me. So so I have this relationship with Lennon, which is pretty good because he was, first of all, very friendly to, to me. Uh, as he would often be, with, especially with people that he liked that are new. And I took, I, I always say this, and I think it's true, that I took good pictures of his girlfriend, you know? I just think that, that had a lot to do with them liking to have me around, right? And, and, I, and I had no judgment. You know, there's so much judgment floating around about all that, I didn't have any of it, right? Uh, and so the circus rolls around and I take the pictures of the circus and then I get a call from Neil Aspinall who asked me to come down to see him, right? So I went down. I, I don't know that I even knew who he was, frankly. Uh, and so I go down to Apple. He wants to see the pictures that I took of John Lennon. That's, that's what the call is about. Uh, I heard you took some pictures of John, would like to see. So I go trotting down to Apple I go into the, the the big Neil Aspinall office, uh, and I'm sitting there with him. And I'm I'm not a complete idiot, so I brought all the pictures from the Rock and Roll Circus right with me, so I could show him those as well. And so he's looking at those, and and you know, it's apocryphal, but it's, I, it's pretty clearly true that they were always watching each other. Who's doing this? Who's doing that? And if you were working for one of them, it was probably going to Put you in pretty good stead to work with the other, right? And so here I am working with the Stones, who have, thanks to Garrett Mankowitz, a terrific sort of reputation for great imagery, which I kind of inherited, I guess. And, and so while I'm standing there, I think I'm going to ask him, if, I knew they were at Twickenham. So I just thought, I'm going to ask him if I can go down to Twickenham. And so I ask him, and he says to me, no. <laughs> And and given my rise and how crazy everything was, you know, really, my response internally was, "That's the first sensible answer (laughs) I've received since I've been here." And I completely ignored him. The same people that were filming "Let It Be" were all the same people that were filming. The, the circus I knew everybody right I knew the director Michael Lindsay I knew the cameraman Tony Richmond. I knew Glenn I knew everybody and so I guess as a result of that I knew where I wasn't I just went down to Twickenham it was a big sound stage just I'm not taking pictures I just showed up right and I'm standing there kind of if you, if you can imagine they're at the end of the sound stage with that big psych behind them and I'm, you know, God knows, 300 feet away by the entrance to the stage. And as I'm standing there, I feel like somebody's looking at me, and I turn to look, and it's Neil. <laughs> so, so I think I'm really up shit creek now. And Neil walks up, swear to God, and says, Looks at me and says, We've decided to let you come down. <laughs> And I don't. And I say, and I don't know where I get this the the this, this the balls from. But then I said I won't come down for one day. Right? You have to let me come for three days. And he says, "Okay." <clears throat> you know, controller wants to control. Right? I know where you get the balls. It's Florence Harriman. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And so and so, then I go down for three days. And then in a, another act of complete serendipity, I go to show the pictures at Apple, and I'm talking to Derek Taylor, who says, oh, well, let's see what you got, and let's go down to Peter Brown's office. So in Apple, Peter Brown's office was the sane office, right? It was a big office, big white walls, and quiet and organized, right? Not frantic, I mean, the press office was always insane. And so I'm down there, and Derek comes down with me, and I can't remember who else is there. And I'm starting to show the pictures from Twickenham on the wall, projecting them. And while I'm doing that, in the room walks Paul McCartney, George Harrison, John and Yoko, and assorted others. Derek Taylor's already there. Neil, I guess, too, and. The whole time that I, and then at the end of it, somebody, somebody says, I don't know who it was, it wasn't me. Somebody said, those are great. We should do a book. And then I get hired for the balance of the filming of Let It Be. And the whole time I'm there, which is probably the balance of that month till the rooftop shoot, I never see all four of them in the same room ever again. Unless they're in front of the cameras. So the odds of that happening were, you know, what they were. More luck than any human being. So that's how that happened. So tell me about the rooftop. Well, the rooftop was, so if you've read or are aware of the transcripts, which you probably are from Let It Be, a large part of them, there's a lot of them trying to figure out how they're going to end the movie. Michael is the driver, right? Michael Lindsay Hawk. And he's trying to do the big ending, right? We've got all this stuff while we're making music. Uh, and it's all great, you know, maybe. Uh, and But we need a big ending. And so they talk about taking the Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mary or whatever to Egypt, <laughs> You know, and performing at dawn in front of the pyramids, and all these big ideas get floated, and nobody can agree. No one can agree, and 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 the little sort of example of that is, you know, Michael's trying to get him to do it, and and John says, "I don't know. Maybe sounds like it could be fun, right?" Uh, George says. I think it's expensive and insane. Paul says, I don't dig underestimating what's here. And Ringo says, I'll do whatever the others decide. So they can't make up their mind. And so the day before the rooftop, and I'm there every day that they're in front of cameras. The day before the rooftop, we go up to the roof. McCartney, me, Mal Evans, and Michael, I guess, and and they're just looking. I don't know. I mean, I don't really know what they're looking at. I'm just going along because it's happening. And so they, I guess they're talking about it. So obviously, the day before, the idea of um, shooting on the rooftop had come up, and so I guess they were going to do it. And and so the next day. I guess it's set up outside and everybody leaves downstairs and I go up with them. Uh, and uh, I guess I'm already out on the roof and they haven't come out yet. And, but Glenn tells me that they were still arguing about it because he had a mic. Uh, they were still arguing about it uh, before they stepped out on the roof. Right. So this was not something this is, you know, what did they say? You know, was it politics is the art of the doable you know what I mean it was what was doable right Um, and so they did it and to me years later with a little more hindsight you know 30 days earlier they didn't have any songs so they wrote I mean I used to get so pissed in the 70s with these spoiled little fucking artists you know who would whine about getting up at 11 a.m you know, or 2 a m., 2 p.m., right? Uh, and these guys were showing up at 9 a.m., having come from North London to Twickenham, which is a hall, you know, to film. I mean, these guys knew how to work. They all do. That's the common denominator of all these guys that nobody ever pays attention to. Everybody goes, oh, look how cool that is. I get to meet, you know, screw girls and smoke dope, right? Uh these all these guys work like crazy. Stones, all of them. They have real tremendous work ethic. Was it tough?
0: Was it tough to shoot up there?
1: Well, the problem was, you know, I'm better than I was when I started, which is I know a little bit more. I don't think I owned a motor drive yet, which I dare say is a pretty, I, you know, they were invented, but I didn't have one, uh, and so I'm using. I got two cameras. Possibly three, uh, with fixed lenses and their manual advances, and and there's only me, right? So if I knew, you know, it's one of those. If I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, I would have been better to cover it. But I did okay. Uh, You had to stay out of the, the. The biggest problem you can see is one of you know every. I don't know how many. I could have killed myself moments you have in your past, but I've got a few. Uh, And one of them is you can see it in the film. I've got my leg. I've stepped over the restraining barrier at the front of the stage. And it's, you know, three and a half, four stories straight down so that I can, and leaning back so that I can try and get all four of them in the frame. Right. Uh, Cause the widest lens I had was a 24 and it wasn't wide enough to get everybody in frame. So there's, there's that. So I look at the work as being uh, from the roof, as being serviceable. In fact, there's a couple of terrific shots, but you know, it, it's a, it's it's the
0: reality is it's just such a phenomenal moment. Who knew? Right. And it was them, as you just alluded to, and and I hope this comes through in this new project that we're apparently going to see this year. It was the Beatles in one month going from, you know, defeat to pulling victory out at the very last moment. I I, I think it's one of their great stories in that sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know doubt you've seen. The, so I interviewed with Peter Jackson earlier in the year, as did a lot of people. But right? uh, he flew to Hollywood and interviewed a bunch of people, interviewed me, interviewed Michael, Lindsay Hogg. He interviewed Tony Richmond, the cameraman. I mean, he just, you know. He was interviewing everybody. And um, so I'm sure you've seen that little five-minute thing he's put out. I mean, we'll see. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, because, you know, he's a genius. I mean, talk about the alignment of the stars, right? And he's a Beatle fan. So they really landed on their feet, and I really mean that. I mean, I do think that, that they needed somebody. I don't think that's a slam dunk to make this movie be a great movie you know uh but i have no real idea about it but in the same breath they you know all those smiling laughing moments in that five minute piece you can tell are are shot over many days because they're all wearing different clothes
0: and they're at apple for the most part and not at twickenham
1: point but i don't know that i i don't know that So George walks out in Twickenham, and so there's that. I think they – imagine this. This this is what really makes my mind – again, because I ended up having this experience of staying in sort of show business slash entertainment business to the mid to late 70s, and I ended up being in Los Angeles, which is the – you know, which is Los Angeles, right, with all of its various – what's the word? You know, all of its sort of – with its culture, for lack of a better phrase, and all its morals and et cetera, et cetera. And so I got really uh, disenchanted with what music had become, really. On the other side, you have who decided it was a good idea to have the Beatles show up at nine AM in this huge sound stage and make a record? Who really thought about that? You know? And they showed up. But I mean, it was grotesque, and I think as much as anything else, it was sort of evidently grotesque on its surface. Right.
0: But of course, it wouldn't be your last experience with them. That would come <clears throat> uh, some months later, uh, on August twenty second, nineteen sixty nine. The last photo session. How did that come about?
1: So Neil just called me, right, and said we need to do another session, right, and and at that point. I did a big session on a. there was like there was this big, beautiful advertising studio that I used to shoot through the past Darkly, right? You know, when I saw blow up, I thought that studio was fabulous. You know, in retrospect, it was kind of a joke. But the, the this studio was just a beautiful, big studio in South Kensington, and I'd hired it to do the through the past Darkly sessions, and I hired it again to to do this Beatles session, at which I was spending the whole week before coming up with ideas for, and, and, and really looking forward to it. And then the night before I got a call from Neil saying it's going to be at John's house. So that was that. And so I went down and drove down there with an assistant and I, Neil told me, I didn't have a problem with it, but I think Neil told me beforehand that Monte Fresco was going to be there. He was very, I, I was hardly aware of him, frankly. Um, he must've been behind me most of the time, or if I was doing something, he took him off and took some other pictures. But, uh, you know, he was clearly the second unit and, and, and that was fine. You know, one of my big problems is I didn't have any distribution, never through all these years. It's not like I took the pictures and they went anywhere. <laughs> you know, I just took them. Uh, and, so he, of course, he was perfect for that, uh, and you know, and he took him. So the big problem with that for me, I mean, like anything, you know, so much of my story is serendipity. Here it was, I was a better photographer, especially in those years uh, when I was photographing something that was occurring, like the making of a record or anything that's, you know, I will now. I am really so against conceptually the idea of a photo session, right? What's a photo session? What in the broad range of human experience does a photo session fit, right? They're not doing anything. What what as a description of an activity is having your picture taken? It's real a void that shouldn't exist. It's horrible. And it puts all the onus on the photographer to make something happen. Now, some photographers, brilliant photographers, I mean, Richard Avedon could do that in the studio in an unbelievable way, right? But it was not one of my strengths. And so what I see when I look at those pictures is I was not directing anything because I wasn't a director at that point. And and what you get from that series is, the good news, for better or for worse, is you get kind of the way they really were. And the way they really were was kind of over, right? And while I like some of the pictures, they may have felt that they didn't want to do it. I have no idea, right? And they had to do it. I mean, it speaks to the fact that if they were told to show up somewhere, they showed up somewhere, right? Uh, and I don't really know what was going on in their minds in terms of why they were even doing those pictures. I was just told they needed pictures, so that's, so we did it. Well, surely they were friendly with you, right? Friendly enough, uh, the, the, the line I remember is, <laughs> So, John had lived in a house in Weybridge that was... He, his description for it was a mock Tudor shit house. Uh And it was a suburban, pretty big house. Uh, but it had sort of, you know, how you can see it's a style. You see in Los Angeles where they've got kind of the Tudor timbers in the wall. And... And that's what he lived in. And he moved out and then he and Yoko moved down to Titnor's Park, which is where that session was, which was pretty grand and beautiful. And so we're walking around there. And so I'm walking with John and Yoko while we're going from one location to another. And I say, I say to him, nice move. And he goes, yeah, checkmate. <laughs> so, you know, that was John. Um, no, I didn't know I didn't talk to McCartney at all. Um, I didn't talk to George at all. If you look at my, I didn't talk to Ringo at all. So um, that I recall, um, if you look at the contact sheets and I don't, it's not like today, I didn't have 3000 pictures. I think I've maybe had six or eight rolls, and, and George is not smiling in any of them. Not one smile. He looks the way he looks in the pictures that are published, which is down and if he could have been anywhere else in the world, he would have been there. It never changes the whole day. And, McCart- and McCartney puts a little energy into trying to be cute, but it's not very successful because I don't pick up on it. And at the end of the day, it just all kind of falls apart
0: under its own weight. Wow. Well, I got to tell you, I, uh, those, that, that session and your work that day has meant a lot to me because as a person trying to tell this story, it's kind of the end point.
1: What happens at the end of that, the last picture I shoot, they say to me, well, what are you going to do? And I, or something like that. And I say, well, I'm going to go back to America, right? And, and so they, they say, okay, Ethan, have a great time. And all I can think is they know my name. <laughs> all I can think is that's unbelievable that they know who I am. I mean, I've been with them, right? So it's not that unbelievable, but it was to me. But then then there was, I think maybe it was after that, because it was maybe after the, that moment I'm telling you about. I went into the house, and this is just a great moment. So I've been there for all of the making of Let It Be. And I, I've never been around anybody making an album, which seems like such a shame, because I would have been more appreciative, right? I had no idea, right? And, but, but, you know... And I wasn't a big fan of hearing a, a song get made because I didn't have any way of appreciating it, truly. And so, you know, by the time we've heard a song 45 times, it's just not all that, you know, whatever. And, and um, so while I'm there taking one of the last pictures ever, uh, somebody walks in with the acetate for, for Abbey Road, you know, and they put it on. And it's like, oh, my God, the Beatles, you know, because whatever else let it be is. And it's a lot of things and it's good, but it's not Beatles in the truly traditional sense of a George Martin record. Right. So uh, that was pretty incredible. And that's the way I feel about Abbey Road. Abbey Road is a really polished piece of work.
0: Hearing the Abbey Road debut on Acetate right there with the Beatles. I can't imagine anything better than that. Uh, what a fan's dream, and in, in this case, a photographer's dream. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Ethan. Much appreciated.
1: I like somebody that's got the same sort of commitment and interest that I do, and uh, and I thank you for your time. Ooh.
0: Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit EverythingFab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story.